fundamentally, there's people that have legal right to land that don't have a document to prove it. A, that doesn't give them psychological security or even physical security. What's happening is there's actually a lot of double spending happening. So people, so properties, uh, land parcels being bought and sold behind the legitimate owner's back without any knowledge of all. They're, they're called that blindsiding. And so, again, due to the lack of a central registry or lack of a, of a place where you can again, confirm that there is no double spending happening. So that's one really crucial problem. And ideally, if we can find a way to create um, an immutable log of and register all these land parcels in an open cadastro map, um, we can reduce the, number, reduce the conflict and uh, simply make life easier for the people that own the land. Welcome to Empower, the first real fire property platform on Cardano that combines emerging technology, sustainable building, and decentralized financial inclusion. My name is Blaine and I'm the sustainability architect here at Empower. And on this podcast, we'll be sharing conversations based around Empower's three key principles of building, community, and impact. If you want to join our journey and help us build a better future with Empower, then make sure to subscribe and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome back to the Empower Podcast. My name is Blaine, and today we are joined by Peter Van Garderen, co-founder of Landano, a Cardano project which seeks to allow owners to manage land records for their real estate property via an easy-to-use DAP. So thanks, Peter, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. No worries at all. Uh, excited for this conversation. There's um, a bit of overlap between our projects uh, with respect to kind of property and also focusing in on, on um, Africa as well. So keen to learn more about Landano and, and also uh, your future plans. But to start us off, can you maybe do a quick introduction, tell the podcast a bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, so, well, uh, who I am, I'm, I'm a professional archivist. I went to uh, grad school to get a master's degree in archival science at the University of British Columbia here in uh, Vancouver, Canada, where I live with my family, my wife and kids. Um, so for the past 20 years, I've been working as uh, essentially an IT consultant, uh, a uh, IT specialist uh, focusing on uh, digital archives, um, electronic record keeping systems, and the preservation, long-term accessibility of digital archive collections. Um, archivists, uh, that's what we've been doing for centuries. So we're essentially librarians that manage collections of historical documents that you might want to keep for you know, historical reasons, for reference reasons, for legal reasons, to prove certain rights and claims, uh, just for business purposes, to keep track of how much wheat you got in the, in the warehouse, that kind of thing. So we started keeping records as a society pretty early on uh, at the beginning, as soon as we started figuring out how to write. And then we start to have people that need to kind of keep tra track of those records and, uh, and that those are archivists. So um, in the medieval times, we developed some more um, professional practices, it, actually around proving the authenticity of land claim documents. So some, some duke says, I own this piece of land over here, and here's my document and seal to prove it. Then somebody had to go study that to prove it was actually authentic or not. And a lot of our uh, practice and discipline in archival science comes from those early days of document analysis. And we still, to this day, apply those practices to evaluate whether electronic records are authentic or not. There's a number of practices and tools that we use from that uh, methodology. So yeah, that's that's our world. Um, I myself am kind of a pioneer in taking those practices and standards and then implementing them in free and open source software tools. So I developed a product called uh, Archivematica, and that, which is like a backend digital preservation system for 
um, institutions in the mostly in the in the library archives, museums, gallery space, but also a lot of uh, public sector governments use it, uh, NGOs and so forth, uh, intergovernmental organizations. Um, it's and then another one called Access to Memory, which is kind of like you can think of like a WordPress or a Drupal for archival collections. So it helps archivists implement archival standards, but make it easily accessible, collections browsable, usable to researchers online through a website. And both of those products are at this point now the most widely deployed uh, applications in that particular sector. Um, it's the fact that they're open source and free, of course, has been a big factor, but uh, I think they're considered market leaders there as well. It's not a, it, there's not a lot of money to be made in archives, to be frank. Like, um, you know, it's really a public good. Uh, the fact that we, you know, that, that when you need that one document, you really need it, but you know, you didn't know that you didn't need the other 2 million, right. But you better keep that mm -hmm. one. So mm -hmm. like there's, it, there's just, there's a, there's a cost, there's a cost to keeping information online and available accessible. That's kind of a hidden cost. People just assume that's being taken care of, but so archives don't necessarily have big budgets, but they still have a big responsibility and a huge um, responsibility to society as a whole. And that's one reason that free and open source software for that community is so important so that we can um, pool our collective knowledge, our infrastructure investments, um, and keep our, you know, keep, keep our digital collections online together by working together. So that's kind of my background. I very much, very much believe in that way of working uh, in an open source kind of like way, radically open projects uh, is how I prefer to work. Um, so yeah, I, I, that's my background. I, so I founded background. a company in Vancouver. That's in this, my company, Vancouver Artifactual Systems sponsors those two projects. And I, one of my staff uh, got me, turned me on to Bitcoin very early on. Um, and again, it very much fit the ethos that we all kind of shared for like, you know, free open source technology, decentralization, uh, cryptography, privacy, security, those all things archivists are much concerned with. So I was very much interested early on. Um, early Bitcoin investor then was very excited when uh, smart contracts came around with Ethereum um, and then dabbled in various little projects all along. Um, to the point where one of my side, rock, side projects kind of took off, um, and I, which was Orcfax, which got Project Catalyst funding, which then also led me to like applying for funding and building a team for Landana, which we also got. So now here I am as of January 1st, um, I switched over from Artifactual Systems, uh, left that company in good hands. I'm still involved as an advisor, um, but I now work full time on these Web3 projects. Interesting, interesting. So the work that you... Um your kind of background, there is this, that sort of work, there's this kind of focus on verification and um, being able to verify information. And that's kind of very much suited to blockchain, blockchain technology. Was there like a moment in your history where you're like, there was like this light bulb moment where you're like, okay, what I'm currently doing, this blockchain technology, which is also kind of open source stuff, could be a good candidate for that. Was there like a moment where like a light bulb moment or was it more like a gradient? Um, I think the light bulb moment for me was listening to Andreas Antonopoulos. I don't know if you're familiar with his mm -hmm. work, but he's a Bitcoin evangelist. And he was one of the, the very first time I heard somebody say there's more tips to Bitcoin than cryptocurrency. There's something underneath it called the blockchain that we should be paying more mm -hmm. attention to. Like before then I kind of like, okay, yeah, yeah, that's all magic. And this, how does it work? But then, you know, he made the point that there's a fundamental technology underlying this whole thing called Bitcoin. That's more, that's, and that's the big story. And that's what really, you know, distributed consensus and um, the ability to certify authenticity, like, or to prove authenticity, like to prove integrity, file integrity, file hasn't changed. Um, those are all features that we are, we have been looking for in the digital preservation, digital archiving field. 
we, we um, you know, we don't, uh, your local public archives will not issue you a certificate of authenticity like a notary might certify a document. Um, but there's still this implied, this, this, it's implied that if a document is at a public archives, that the archivists are doing their best to ensure that those documents remain authentic. And when they hand them over to you, you can, you can trust them to, in your, when you're doing your historical research or when you're doing whatever, you're interacting with the government or whatever else. But, um, but there, was this, there was always, I knew, I knew as somebody working in the field that we, there was this, it, you know, there was like, it was implied that there would be a certification of authenticity, but it wasn't really there. So that's when my light went off. I'm like, this blockchain thing can help us prove and certify authenticity and add to the integrity of even more so to the existing digital archive system. So that's when I became interested in it. And then what I realized quite quickly was that um, people were jumping right to the end to say, oh, blockchain gives you record keeping. Now you can put land records on the blockchain. Now you can put this on the blockchain. And all these promises were being made about what blockchain record keeping could do, which I thought like actually were, were too, um, they promised more than they could deliver. And so I think fundamentally the fact that we have the ability now to have um, distributed consensus in a permissionless peer-to-peer -peer network um, in, in with immutable append-only logs, like that fundamental technology is, like I said, is, is, is very powerful. It gives us these things like, like fixity checking, like being able to say this, this document exists at this point in time and you can, you know, and you can trust it because we've got this permissionless system with, with X number of nodes and peers that have validated this information. But of course, um, we also know that we're not going to put a whole document on the blockchain. There's simply not enough storage per block to put a, a PDF or what have you on, on the blockchain. So what we end up doing is we're creating hashes of the documents and then we put the hashes on the blockchain and that we can fit in transactions. And that whole and then people started, well, doing that is expensive. So you'll, let's batch a bunch of documents and create a hash for that and put that hash in the blockchain. So, so the um, people were using the technology, but then the actual, the actual ability to verify the authenticity, to come back and say, I've got this document and it's gone through all these steps before this hash ended up in the blockchain. Nobody's ever yet created, in my opinion, a good usable solution that walks you back through those steps and proves the, the authenticity. And then secondly, there's a huge issue with accuracy. So you can put any, anything you want on the blockchain and create a hash for it. That doesn't, that doesn't prima facie make it authentic. So I can put like false data and, and create a hash for it to put in the blockchain and, and go, oh, this, is, this is authentic. Yes, it is. It's authentic false data. So it's not accurate, right? So. Uh, mm -hmm. What's authentic about it is that I can prove that you, a bad actor, put it on the blockchain at this point in time. That's authentic information, but the actual contents, the data, is inaccurate. So we will also need accurate data, um, and we need authentic data. And that, the only way to do that is to have, the way we've always done it, is to have good business processes that capture records at the right time and bring them into a, a, um, a comprehensive record-keeping system. And then we add those integrity checks and we have to have good systems to prove the integrity checks. But then something else that's missing is called the archival bond. And that's really the most powerful thing that proves authenticity in archival collections. It's the, that document's relation to the previous document in the business process, to the subsequent document in the business process, to the business process itself, to the next iteration of the business process. All of those things can be uniquely identified. They can be hashed. So when you pull one thing out, even though you can, might be able to prove that, yes, in fact, this document was created at this point in time, but it, is it in fact the, that invoice that you're claiming it to be? Is it in fact this contract you're claiming to be? Well, that process to create the invoice or contract would have had several business process steps beforehand. It would have produced other records and other registries and other systems. And you go and check against those and then you can prove very easily. Right. And that's simply called archival bond. And there is no record keeping system that explicitly 
shows your archival bond in the blockchain space right now. So again, there's there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of low hanging fruit that I as a digital archivist have already observed about, you know, what are, I, didn't, I was sitting on the sidelines watching this stuff and slowly interested and, and I've gotten to the point now I'm like, okay, it's time, it's time to like really, you know, Web3, um, you know, cryptocurrencies, despite the current crypto winter, I think they have a long-term future. And I think there's some expertise I can add to the mix that I think is important that I would like to get in there. So um, that's why I made the leap. And that's why I'm okay. very excited to be working on something like Landano. Okay. So that's a good segue. So what is Landano? Right. So Landano, I think you, you gave it a quick little, a quick little elevator pitch yeah. is that, um, you know, we, we think of it as a decentralized land management application. Uh, so we, we want to give our end users, any stakeholder, in, uh, in any claim on a particular parcel of land, whether you are the owner or the user um, and so forth, or the potential user, um, the ability to prove, um, the ability to store, recall, and uh, present uh, to other users uh, documents that represent claims to land. Um, and as well, so I, you can see I'm being very careful about my language there. We don't, we're not trying to become a land registry. Like we are not the land registry, we're not the government. What we're finding is that there are a large number, like there, okay, maybe I should back up. I want to jump into what problem we're solving, but I'm still trying to describe what we actually do. So we, <laughs> sit, we, we're, we're a smartphone app. We have a smartphone app to bring up land records that if you, to, to, to prove that you own land, to prove that you have the right to use land. Um, and we are including a map interface that we're calling the open cadastro map where all the geospatial data, data that is public and related to a particular parcel of land is being made available to the public as well. There's a huge information uh, discovery gap between people that want to use land records and actually getting at the land records. So um, we don't think we have to become the land registry office to provide a huge service in improving access to land documents and, and, and making it cheaper and easier to do things related to the land claim uh, record keeping. Um, and which is all not because the, the main purpose and our driving goal is the fact that it's quite well known that there's a issue in, in, um, in the global south and within marginalized communities. There's an estimate that there's a, up to 1 billion people that actually have a legal claim on land but have no documentation to prove it. And then without that documentation, it becomes very difficult to do other next, to do things like get a mortgage or get a business loan or um, or even if, if you don't have the documentation or the security that you have, you know, you're able to easily prove your right to the land, you're not going to make an investment. In, let's say you're farming the land. You're not going to put in long-term crops or crops that cost a lot. You want quick return crops. Um, you don't, you don't want to invest, you know, you're worried about making multi-year investments in your, farm, in your farmland, for example. So those are all very practical problems that stand in the way of those 1 billion marginalized people that if they were to have proper trustworthy land record documentation, they could ideally take the next step and, t- and uh, it would solve a lot of conflicts uh, locally but then it allows them to take the next step to then apply for loans against that claim to land, uh, which whether that be a mortgage. Um, and then I, you know, I, ideally we want to make, make this as much uh, of a DeFi bridge as possible as well to say, then find out that we've got this, you don't, you don't have to go to a predatory mortgage provider. That's, that's asking you for 30%. Um, we, you can go to our friends over at Empower. And by the way, we've got an, we got a nice, you know, <laughs> nice integration for you to take the next step once you get your land records on, on chain. So that's the idea is to basically open the world of DeFi to people that have legitimate rights on land. Um, but there's just so many, um, just, just, just institutional, um, societal, economic barriers in the way that we think 
but there's a lot of very, uh, again, low hanging fruit first steps that we can take to, to blast through some of those and get that ball rolling. And that's really the yeah. purpose of Landano. Okay. So I think you probably touched on maybe some of them, but could you outline some of the, the specific or the main problems that you're trying to solve uh, with Landano? Yeah. So again, if, if first of all, there's, there's very fundamentally, there's people that have legal right to land that don't have a document to prove it. So then there's, there's a lot of A, that doesn't give them psychological security or even physical security. Um, what's happening is there's actually a lot of double spending happening. So people, so properties, uh, land parcels being bought and sold behind the legitimate owner's back without any knowledge of all, they, they call that blindsiding. Um, and so um, again, due to the lack of a central registry or lack of a, of a place where you can, again, confirm that there is no double spending happening. Um, so that's one really crucial problem. And ideally, if we can find a way to cre create uh, an immutable log of and register all these land parcels in an open cadastro map, um, we can reduce the, number, reduce the conflict and uh, simply make life easier for the people that own the land. Again, secondly, the, the purpose is to then allow for uh, DeFi opportunities, lending, borrowing, um, and other things once that, once that land is, is available. Um, like I said, there's... It's the, the problem is actually really more fundamental in a lot of ways too. Like a lot of the, what we're finding in early pilots is that, uh, and so we're doing a pilot in Ghana, we're doing, we're starting one in Mozambique. Um, there, in, in a lot of African nations, there is recognition in the constitution and land, land laws for traditional practices for recognizing rights to land. Um, but there is a gap between the, 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 the communal leaders being able to then take that right and responsibility and use a more modern IT system to just manage it, right? Just to manage their records. So it's all done verbally. And, you know, um, that also leaves the door open for some bad apples, some bad leaders to like make side deals without it being properly documented. Um, but so there is, there's a huge gap just in going from the traditional world to getting it registered, not re sorry, getting it online and digitized, getting the land claims registered online and then take even then going a few steps further before you even get to the land registry office, that first step is missing. And so we have a partner in Mozambique called Terra Firma that's been doing some amazing work um, around um, their, their, their process and constitutional land claim rights, allowing essentially traditional village leaders to create community so land associations for their communal land, and then follow the, the constitutional practice of individuals declaring their right to the land and being issued a document for that. Terra Firm has gone as far as producing laminated uh, documents for that. We're gonna go one step further now and mint those as like uh, Cardano-based NFTs. And we're seeing the same problem in Ghana. So we went into Ghana thinking we would tackle the um, uh, urban land title issues where, where there's, there's, there's a lot of conflict in Ghana. Let's, so over 50% of the court cases in Ghana currently are tied up in land conflict uh, claims. So um, it's a, it's really a place that needs some help with this. So that's why we're hoping that, again, that's a good place for us to choose to have some impact. Um, so we started off thinking we'd do something um, for, these, for these many urban land conflicts. Um, but as it turns out, um, again, there was similar to Mozambique, there was, there's, there's these traditional land claim practices. Over 80% of the land um, in Ghana is, um, is managed and responsible for traditional community leaders. Um, so that's called stool land or skin land in, in Ghana. Um, whether that's through a village chief or um, a, uh, I forget the terminology, but anyway, so there's, there's a variety of community leaders, um, but they simply don't have the tools to, you know, to, to, they rely on their own advisors. And then there is 
there is, you know, typically, of course, people have their best interest of community in mind, but they don't always. And um, by not having it well documented and regulated, it makes it easy to take advantage of those situations. So it's, it's an anti-corruption uh, play as well. Um, and then lastly, it just costs a lot of money like um, to, to do anything with land registration. So we think we can solve that problem as well. So in Mozambique, for example, if somebody wants to go the next step and take the, take the, the, the community land claims or claim land there, you have to travel several days to provincial, to provincial um, city where they have the office. You might wait several days to actually meet with somebody there. And then the person behind the counter might not speak your local tongue. So you actually have a translation problem and then the document mm. may or may not be there. So the people just don't bother. And so, um, you know, this, which means we just keep spinning up the same problems just keep repeating over and over again. So we feel like this, you know, land, reg land title registration is kind of this first notch in the wheel that hopefully can, can, can help mobilize like economic social mobility. Mm -hmm. um, so you mentioned earlier that, Land owner is not going to be like a land registry that's they're not going to be involved with that part specifically. So I imagine you'd need to be working with a local um, land registry kind of officials. Correct. Yeah. Um, can you maybe step through how that, that process would look like? Uh, I, I guess you just were touching on some, some of the difficulties with respect to communication with people with speaking different languages, but how would that, um, that relationship that's like, there's no alternative is there. It's not like you could bypass that. You have to work. No, you have to kind of right. merge the yeah. systems. They have to be interoperable some, some, at some point for this to work. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So um, yeah. And this is where some, I think some other land registry projects in the past have failed. They just worked in this kind of fantasy vacuum and they don't recognize that there's real world people with real world roles that we were probably never replace or automate. Like um, you, you simply can't. So, um, yeah, so the Land Commission Office and its, you know, uh, mandated uh, responsibilities and rights, and we can't replace that with a private entity unless at some point a government blesses it and lets you do that. But so exact. So um, what we're trying to do is is minimize the number of points where we're dependent on a you know authorized person to do something. So there's there in order to do you know there's some surveys have to be certified. Um, some cases a notary has to sign something. In some cases a lawyer has to sign something. So we've you know been working on these process maps. Um, and, and the thing is that Ghana is a diverse country and has many provinces and they're working on decentralizing the land and it has all these various land commissions. So one process in one place is not necessarily the same in another place. So it's um, so we're we're very much trying to apply an agile software methodology uh, collecting user stories and having those driver requirements, which actually, you know, reflects this kind of change to this rural context as well. Um, so, um, but at the end of the day, there will always be a touch point where like at this point, now we filed the document with, it's called the land commission in, in Ghana. We filed a document with the land commission. So, uh, and, and uh, the land commission is working hard at like providing like digital service desks, like trying to digitize as much of their, their work as possible as well. They of course want to move to the point where they can, make it easier for their end users. To, so we, ideally we can start interfacing with some of the new mm. digital uh, interface that they have, and then we can bulk uh, submit documents. That's, our, that's what we're hoping to do right now. Um, but even again, if we, um, if we have a professional, so, you know, there's, we're working with a land registry office in Kamasi, Ghana right now, the second largest city in Ghana. Um, and, you know, we have a representative there that has, is building a relationship with the people there, explaining what we're doing, what we're trying to do, making sure that we're not coming in surprising anybody. And just that is that relationship alone means we now already have 
a person within our land, and this is what we envision is that we'll have representatives, like whether that's a notary or lawyer that officially becomes part of the network. And then they will become the person that, okay, now is the step when we file a document. Great. You go file this document, but you know, go file 50 instead of one. And mm-hmm. then, uh, you know, like, can we, can we re- start reducing these costs? Like, and, and bringing these costs down and think, and we don't have it, we, you know, we need to, part of our pilot work has to be, it costs X amount to do this. So then we know whether we need, you know, how we make this sustainable. Like, how do we, you know, so for example, the initial work to like survey a village and get that get that uh, village boundary map is kind of was initial one of those initial genesis events that costs money. Um, so you know, like where does that money come from? And it's um, there's lots of options for that. Like again, it can be community sponsored. NGOs have been throwing hundreds of millions of dollars at land administration for years, and they're not getting anywhere. So there's lots of money to be available available from grants from you know, UN, um, World Bank and those kind of places. Um, so anyway, there's it's an interesting discussion around where does that money come from? But then once we figure out how much something costs, so then how can we how can we make it, how can we figure out the minimal amount of transaction costs to do things online now? So again, we drive the cost down for everybody, but we still keep the system sustainable so that it can maintain itself over, over time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so we will always need we'll always need those land commissions that will you know we'll always need a lawyer, we'll always need a mm-hmm. surveyor, maybe, and those people cost money. So how much and how can we reduce those costs? Like that's all part of our analysis right now. But also imagine the the local land commission officers, they would it would be kind of like a mutually beneficial thing. Like they could absolutely their whole processes yes. could 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 um improve through collaborating with something like Landano. So it's it's yeah. not like there would be a lot of well, maybe like it seems like there wouldn't be a lot of friction to kind of adopt your sort of services. Like it, it would be something that would benefit everyone involved. It would seem, yeah. Yeah, we would like to think so. Like we came in the door with a complete boundary survey for a village that they didn't have had before. It was all geospatial survey data using professional survey equipment surveyors. Um, um, so now they so they have missing data. Like they have poor missing incomplete data, and we're going out in the field that we're going to be either be creating that data data where it doesn't exist, or we're going to verify their data. So they already see us as like a big help that way, as a, just as purely as a data quality service mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. some ways. Yeah. Um, so yeah, which is nice to see. We weren't quite sure how that was going to work out, um, uh, but already we're kind of seen as like um, as a kind of like a partner that is able to contribute. Yeah. You were talking earlier about some pilot projects. Could you maybe expand on some a couple of the pilot projects that you are currently working on or plan to work on in the, the near future? Yeah, so so right at the current moment, we are doing a pilot project right in, in Ghana in the Kamasi region. Um, we'll we'll publish some blog posts over the next few weeks with more details. So we, we can't, we don't want to provide, we have to figure out what we can or can't share as far as private data at this moment, mm-hmm. as far as making it public in a blog post. Um, but yeah, we, we are we are working with a traditional village that um, has no um, no survey data um, that had the the chief had no uh, land title registrations for any of the parcels of land within his village that he was responsible for. So we started there, and um, we are we work with them to do a boundary survey of their village, so that we could now we can go back to the cadastro to the. Uh, land commission and say, here's the village and here's all the land that the chief is responsible for. What do you have any registrations for any of the land within this village? And then, um, so the chief is responsible for like, you know, managing land and and issuing land use within the village, but also of course, conflicts with neighboring villages if the boundary here isn't here, there, there. And that's where it's super interesting too, because of course this, this has been managed pretty good over like centuries, right? 
And so, but what we're, we're in this interesting space now of like trying to respect those traditional rules and laws, but also give them a leg up into the modern world by like, but not, not come in and say, oh, let's sprinkle some blockchain over this and we're going to fix all your problems for you. It's trying to, trying to respect how they see the world and how, and the tools and how they want to use our tools and how they can best use our tools. So when we did the survey, for example, like there, there is one, there's a stream of land that separates the village from the next one. And then suddenly like there's a cliff that drops off, but you can see like the line where the water drew the line and everybody knows that's the line. Like that's, that side is our village. That side is your village. And on the opposite side, on the, on the east side of the village, they, they had a special type of shrub that grows well in the jungle, but doesn't only grows about like four or five feet high. And so it's very distinguishable from the native shrubbery. So they, so at some point decades ago, the two villages came along and planted these trees to mark the village boundary. So that hmm. that's in the ground that's there. And so we're coming along, marking that up and recognizing and trying to figure out a way to respect those, those practices as well. So interesting that that was kind of how they would separate the, the, the yeah, well, of the land. I, I think, I think to this day, if there was a if there was a dispute happening on the ground right now, people would probably point to those shrubs or the, or the line before they would pull up a smartphone and argue about a land down <laughs> record. So we're so we still have to get to that point. But and again, that's what I'm trying to we're trying to figure out how to respect both, right? So the other thing we recognize is that the majority of users we're targeting right now are 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 rural, very poor. The majority are illiterate. Um, their villages have you know not reliable access to electricity or internet. Um, so for us to come waltzing in with like heavy duty, um, you know, GPS gear and like, you know, you know, bring up your smartphone and get like, so there's all these very basic steps we have to think through, like, how can we create completely off technology that works completely offline technology that's cheap enough to leave in the hands of villagers and users, um, to make it easy to subsidize those like on the ground technology costs. Um, those are all interesting parts of things that we might take for granted if you're doing this somewhere, somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I'd like to take a step back to the Cardano level. Is there what what are the reasons for for building Landano on Cardano? Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, I I first learned about Cardano when uh, Charles Hoskinson did a address at the Ethereum Classic conference here in Vancouver. So again, being an Ethereum um, kind of enthusiast for a long time. Um, and then the DAO hack happened and there was a fork. I don't know if you remember that this is a big this is a mm-hmm. blockchain crypto history, mm-hmm. but there was like kind of like the, uh, the true believers that said, well, no, we shouldn't, we shouldn't have done a fork. We should have just kept with the original chain that was the Ethereum Classic. Charles and um, I think IOHK were, had a team working on that for a long time. And that's why they invited him to speak anyway. So I was like, wow, who is this guy? Like he really knows what he's talking about. I like, I like what he's saying. Um, he, and he kept mentioning Cardano. So I went and checked it out and I did a deep dive for a couple of days and like was really sold on it. Like I'd actually stopped doing a bit of, I st- I'd stopped doing my web, any web three or blockchain development for a while there. I got really disillusioned by all the greed and hype and, um, kind of like, kind of, kind of like felt like it's lost its way in a bay in a way. And then I started, you know, listening to Charles talking about banking the unbanked and then like the Africa focus and like, like, you know, very, it's very heavily like attracting people that want to make a social impact. Like it's a blockchain, whether, whether technology is right for it or not, the community is one of people that are motivated to do social change. change. Makers. And so that yeah. change makers. And that pulled me in as well. And then, but also from a technical architect point of view, I really do like um, appreciate what, what the thinking that went into the extended UTXO model it, you know, it creates. It doesn't means it's more challenging to implement right now in some ways, but like fundamentally, I think it's a really sound design. Um, I also very much just as an academic, somebody coming from very much an academic way of working, 
uh, appreciate like the peer review formal methods approach uh, that, that I saw. So a lot of the technologies, web three technologies that would come across my screen, you know, it was, it was you know, you know, felt, felt like it was a bunch of like white papers, you know, written on a college binge night, um, as opposed to one that was um, fairly well thought out and like, you know, like, uh, again, using peer review methodology. So anyway, the whole methodology and approach of the community appealed to me. And then uh, best of all, there was this thing called Project Catalyst that said, hey, if you got a good idea, um, you know, you don't have to like, you know, appeal to our grant committee. We've got this open, um, decentralized community run uh, treasury that if you have a good idea, you might get funded. So um, I had the, the one thing at, before Landano, uh, but still very much related to my record keeping archives side of things. I was very, I've been very interested in the so-called Oracle problem. Like how do you, um, how do you take real world events and data and put them up on the blockchain and prove that they're authentic and accurate. So again, that's tailor made for my archives expertise and background. So um, I, I pitched a project that's uh, called OrcFax that's working on creating a, a, a Cardano-based Oracle. And what I propose to do is, is make that Oracle more trustworthy by having uh, proper archival record-keeping audit trails so that you can study where the data came from off-chain. Um, and also after the fact, you can go back and have historical records for what data was published, where it came from, how consensus was arrived on it. So there's just not good audit trails, in my opinion, with most Oracle solutions currently. Uh, interesting. Um, and so that... And that has to get bundled into a proper archival package and put somewhere in secure, trustworthy storage that anybody can access in a decentralized way. So that's, you know, that, that became OrcFax and then uh, it got funded. And then um, just by chance, I said, okay, let's have another look at these other, the next round of funding, what's coming out. I saw one called Nation Building Dapps and then was, a was one of the challenges was Nation Building Dapps. And the way they set that challenge up was the bit, essentially to quote Hernando de Soto, who wrote a book in the early 2000s called The Mystery of Capitalism, uh, the mystery of capital, why does capitalism work in the West and fail everywhere else? And his thesis was essentially that um, people in the so-called, uh, you know, in the, in the so-called developing world did not have land title records. And that was stopping them from taking that, the thesis I started talking about earlier, that's stopping them. So that, that was the central thesis of his book. It was quite popular in the 2000s. I did a lot of work. I was spending a lot of time in Washington, D.C. doing contracting work for like the World Bank and IMF. And they flew him out and like, you know, had a big do and like, all the archives people were so excited because that meant records were now important because people were going to use records to prove that they own land and then it was going to help everybody. And then just, it just kind of fizzled out. And it turns out there's lots of controversy around his own motivations. And, you know, he's a bit of a neoliberalist liberalist and um, how he's done his research, but at the end of the day, the argument doesn't go away. Anyway, that caught my eye because I, you know, that was an idea that I um, thought about quite a bit as a, as a way that archivists can make a real impact that records can make a real impact. Um, and so when I saw it quoted um, and saw some people starting to talk about that, I was like, oh, I can't, I can't not get involved. Like I gotta, mm -hmm. I gotta like speak up as an archivist and go, well, you know, we should do this and this. And next thing I know, uh, you know, I've met, I've met my co-founder Doris Vandercroft, um, who's a Rotterdam based uh, software developer. Um, and we started building a team around this um, and we got, we got our funding um, and uh, we're now up and running. So um, that's, Exciting. that's how we, that's Cardano. That's why we chose Cardano. Yeah, and shout out to Project Catalyst. Whenever um, this podcast mentions Project Catalyst, I always like to give a shout out because it's just such a um, awesome thing that no one outside of Cardano really knows about, or if they do, they don't acknowledge. But it's such a powerful thing that that is part of the Cardano ecosystem, and we benefited as well um, in power. So 
yeah, shout out to Project Catalyst. Yeah, hundred percent. I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today if it wasn't for that. Like um, the opportunities that Landano and Orcfax have in front of us now are completely dependent on the opportunity we got through Project Catalyst. So mm. yeah, this it's got its going growing pains and uh, and drama now and then, but I, I believe in it. Uh, I'm a firm believer in the Catalyst vision and where it's going and what's what the great things that it's allowing people to do. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, Another thing with Cardano is the the term RealFi. It's kind of mm. coined as a Cardano coin term, um, but often people have different. Um, they define it maybe differently. So some think of of RealFi as DeFi with like real world impact. Some people define it as DeFi, which is like linked to real world assets. Maybe it's a combination of both. How do you think of RealFi? How would you, yeah? How would you kind of maybe define real RealFi, or how would you think about RealFi? Yeah, I just I think it very simplistically when I first heard the term, I already I was like I said, I was already thinking about this oracle problem. Like there's the real world, there's something that happens in a real world, there's time, space, and an event somewhere in that in the four-dimensional grid. There's an event, and that's what oracles report on. And, and that's the real world. And then how do I bring it into the the default into the sorry, the 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 crypto world? And so I in my mind already there was this thing about you know what's happening over here in meat space where you and I are actually living right mm-hmm. now versus cyberspace of ones and zeros. And so to me, it was always like something that something where blockchain technology had an actual real world impact on a person or an entity or an event in the real world. And so uh, it's not a bunch of ones and zeros, you know, doing a swap uh, or flash loan. And uh, it's never it's it's never touched the real world. And mm. so if if I'm able to lend you money to build a house, that house is a real thing. Um, if I'm able to get you a record that represents, you know, that represents real land, that's a real thing. If I'm able to source um, locally grown cotton and build um, and manufacture clothing with it, that clothing and that cotton are real things. And representing those on chain is what RealFi does. Um, that that to me is RealFi. Like, and mm. but so um, to me, it's also yeah. It, I guess in a way, it's also a little bit of like an ethos, right? Like a like it is a way of like saying can we just please stop all this like JPEG NFT business for a while and get on with like, you know, helping the world was what, what we're, was that what we were signed up for. Right. And to me, it's like, if I feel like the people that are kind of gathering under the real five banner kind of fit, you know, whether that's, you know, hundred percent technically accurate way of thinking about it. It's also kind of a movement in a way, isn't it? Like people that say, wasn't it supposed to be about social change? Like let's get on with that. And that to me is what real five feels like too. Mm. Yeah. That definitely resonates with me. Uh, it's, there's this um, value flow between meat space and cyberspace. I like how you, uh, the word meat space, it's a <laughs> good way to think of it. Um, yeah, and I like the idea of it as a movement as well, because it's ultimately, I think blockchain, while I think of blockchain as a tool to kind of improve upon the world that we kind of live in at the moment, the real world, the tangible world, mm-hmm. there's so many problems to solve and blockchain is just a really amazing tool that has so much potential to address some of these problems. Um, you know, if you want to completely live in the metaverse and, and your life is just cyberspace, then it probably has that functionality as well. And that's cool. Um, but the real world stuff is where I'm personally really excited about. Um, we're nearing the end of the podcast. Uh, there's a couple more questions. Is there anything that you wanted to touch on that we haven't touched on so far? No, I think this, um, I think we some very detailed questions. I just, I just, I just rant on until you tell me to stop. So, um, 
I just, I just, I just want to say, I really love Empower, by the way. I just want to say like what a great inspiration Empower has been to me personally into the Landano project. Like you guys are really the first one to plant that real fight flag, flag in my opinion. And just seeing how you guys carried yourself and marketed yourself, like really gave me a boost of confidence that projects like ours can follow that, that trail as well. So I just want to say good on you guys. Like, I think you're, you're really kind of a few steps ahead of a lot of us and um, you're, you guys are very inspiring. So I, I love the project too. Empower project. Appreciate it, bro. Appreciate it. Um, and then of course, I mean, like you said, like you said earlier, like this is a very natural connection, right? Like I, um, that, that chain, yeah, like, much. Like, we, yeah. we would like to then, you know, we were, we're, we're actively talking to projects like Empower to figure out how, once we get land title registration documents on our platform, how do we easily integrate with the, the next step and how do we open DeFi to the, to mm -hmm. our users? Yeah. And I think that's one, one, um, part of this podcast as well is, um, really getting to know as many real fire projects in, in Cardano, not only as a learning tool, but also just an exposure tool that like we just learning about what projects exist and where we can collaborate. And, you know, if we have you on our podcast, maybe someone else who is working in a similar area can kind of learn about you for the first time. And then I think in this space where we're just growing, like this is a fairly new movement. Um, exposure to these different ideas and collaborating where it makes sense is um, going to be quite powerful, especially during the time in crypto at the moment where it seems maybe there's not a lot of hype. This is the time to be building um, and collaborating. So that really gets me excited, the, the building, the collaborating and the yeah, building like, side of things at the moment. I think the crypto winter, of course, it's unfortunate people lose real money, um, uh, never invest more than you can afford to lose. But um, in some ways for people like you, like for the projects like Empower and Landano, it, it maybe helps a little bit to get a little bit of heat out of the, you know, out of the bubble, a uh, little air out of the bubble. And I agree hundred percent. Like I, I, I think the, I think the space has been distracted to be honest with you. And I, I would like after this bear market, I think RealFi could be the engine that drives crypto forward after this. Like if it's no longer is, you know, it's real world stuff that people need. If we just start implementing these things and they actually work, we, we're going to introduce blockchain through the back door before people know it, realize that we've, you know, we're running half the world system. So that's, that's to me, like how this mm. is going to work. Um, and having, and, and, and a lot of the, the market hype is actually a risk. Like it's actually a danger for us being able to have the resources and time to accomplish what we're trying to accomplish. So um, yeah, I'm, yeah, my, I, I don't even look, you know, I, yes, I'm an investor in crypto as well, but I've, I, I have been for a long time. So I know not to look at my balance when I don't need to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's probably good for your for your mental health uh mm -hmm. if, if you kind of maybe check it a bit less um but yeah i, I agree i think real is hopefully going to be we have these trends in crypto we have metaverse we have nfts um hopefully real fire is around the corner because i think that's when you get some real some real change happening hopefully um okay so how can people connect with Landano, um, get involved with your community, support your work? How do, how do they go about doing that? Yeah, well, the best way is just to follow us online. So we've got our website at landano.io and that has like a newsletter, newsletter sign up. So anytime we put a blog post out, um, which we're gonna try to do more regularly going forward, um, you'll get a, a copy in your inbox. And then we've got, we're building our community around Twitter right now. Um, and so, yeah, we're also at uh, twitter.com slash Landano Dapp. Um, and that's the best way just to interact with us for the time being. 
Um, we are, we love getting feedback from the community, but yeah, like, like I said, pretty much throughout this podcast, we're very much focused on building at the moment. So, you know, the stuff we talk about is those pilots in the building. And then, um, you know, we'll, we'll start working on something resembling a white paper near the end of the summer. And then we'll start thinking about more practical things like, you know, tokenomics, those kinds of things. People do ask about that. Yes, there will be a token. Um, there will be a utility token to fund transactions, uh, perhaps act as a stable coin. Um, you know, whether that's our own token or somebody else's, that, that's none of that stuff we decided yet. We just need, we, our first focus is like figuring out what we need to build, make it work. And then how to keep it sustainable is this is the next question. Once we get an idea of costs and all the options that are out there. So um, yeah, I hope that, that answers your question. Yeah, yeah definitely. And uh, yeah, I add those links in, in the description. Um, and for the final uh, question, which is a forward kind of looking question, what excites you the most about the future of real fire? I, th I think it's like, um, I think if we can keep this industry going long enough to actually start, you know, implementing the kind of solutions that your project and our project is working on. Um, like I said, my, the way I see this transition happening is like, I believe in blockchain and web three, because I believe that centralized systems, centralized governance, centralized finance are at the root of some, uh, almost all our problems, whether you climate change, war, economic inequality, you have it like, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. And we have centralized systems in all sectors of society that put certain people at the top and allow them to make selfish decisions. And so I think, you know, starting with finance, uh, if we are able to decentralize that uh, in with, with infrastructure systems, that just becomes part of daily life that people don't think twice about. Um, and then move towards things like governance, like how we make rules for how to regulate our, our world um, and on and on and on. Um, I, I think blockchain fundamentally, like I said earlier, like has a fundamental technology that other technologies, like it, it is something like, I believe there's going to be a, sh a technolo technological shift as fundamental as when we introduced TCIP for the internet or GSM for mobile phones, like blockchain technology is just one of those things that's not going to go away. Um, and it's going to, I, I think it's, you know, the, the old phrase software will eat the world. I think blockchain technology will slowly eat the world, but it, it, it should not be about uh, running ads for uh, board apes online during the Super Bowl. It should just be like slow, slow, but um, slow, but steady, kind of like replacement of back end infrastructure where people just, the technology used today um, just gets replaced by better uh, decentralized systems, right? And it's, I see something like, you know, the backlash against um, centralized platforms like Twitter and Facebook. Um, you know, people wanting data sovereignty and data ownership that could easily be kind of like the starting point for like a mass kind of shift where if Web3 can offer that. And oh, by the way, it's enabled by like micro blockchain microtransactions in the background, which you don't have to think about. Right. We have to get the usability right. So I think that's the future. And that's the exciting thing to me for RealFi, for like about RealFi is that that hopefully then we can organize ourselves better. I think the majority of people. Um, are reasonable. Like I do believe in this, you know, wisdom of the crowd versus the madness of the mob. Um, I think if we can put the right tools and systems in the place of the general population, I think together the world can make better decisions for ourselves than what our current leadership is doing. So, and I think that's, that's my hope. That's the dream. That's why I work on real fight because I think um, again, I play my small part as an archivist. Uh, I think it's a small, but I think crucial part. And I'm just trying to help push that those solutions forward, which, you know, at the end of the day, we're all, this is, these are tough times, right? So, you know, I, the fact that I can wake up in the morning and feel like I'm making a positive change is actually really, really powerful. Like it's like a good way just to stay sane in this crazy world. Um, so I would encourage other people on the fence, like come join us in the web three world. Join us. Yeah. We, we need your help. <laughs> <laughs>